Well, there are warnings all around us. You get into your car, your dashboard lights up, there's something wrong, you get on the phone and you call the mechanic, right? Or we have smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors in our house for when you burn the pizza or when you have a gas leak. I grew up in a small town in southern Wisconsin and there was a noon whistle that actually went off every single day at noon. But that whistle also doubled as a warning for possible tornadoes, right? Uh, it was a warning to take shelter because a deadly storm is coming. Well, why do we have these warning systems? They are not for our harm, but they are for our good. However, these are things that we don't actually want to have to utilize regularly, right? We don't want to hear the smoke alarm or the, or the tornado whistle. We don't want to see the dash lights on our car. But what if there was a warning system that was also for our good, our ultimate good, that was always available, always giving us the same consistent message about the danger around us, always providing a way of escape, always providing comfort and hope. And what if on our best days, when life seems to be going well, when all is smooth sailing, what if we needed that warning system just as much on those days as we did on the hard days? Well, you probably see where I'm going with this. The word of God is that warning system. It's not something that only comes on when you turn the keys to your car or when the fire department spots a funnel cloud outside of town, or when you have burnt the pizza. It's always on. It's always active, and it's always consistently giving us the same message. The question is, will we hear that message? Will we listen to the word of God day in and day out and respond accordingly? I am so excited to get to preach on this passage. This is one of my favorite texts in all of scripture. It's always been, this has been a passage that's always intrigued me. I've always, when I always get to this place in Luke, I always love reading this. I've had some very interesting conversations about this passage. But I don't know that I've always focused on it correctly. I don't know if I've always been focused on it for the right reasons. I think warning is the theme of this text. And my warning to you, like to myself in the past, is don't get sidetracked on the details that aren't the main point of this text. I want to say this is not the first place that we should go to for our doctrine of heaven and hell. Uh, there are some important principles here, but I don't think this is the definitive place to go. Now you might be like, what? Don't you believe in the authority of scripture? Yes, I absolutely do, don't worry, but that is not what I'm saying here. We have to understand the point of this text, and there is a lot of scholarly debate around this. It really centers on kind of what's the nature of this passage. Is it a parable? Is Jesus just telling a parable here? Is this a true story, um, or is it kind of somewhere in between? I think most scholars agree that it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's maybe what we might call an example story. Uh, it's not necessarily all true, but it's not necessarily all 
parable either. Um, but either way, that's not really the central issue uh, to this passage. And that's why I think context is so key. So what did we see last week? Jesus told his disciples last week about the parable of the dishonest manager. He was the one who was about to lose his job, right? Because he was scheming and he was, he was stealing money from his master. Uh, so he calls in all his master's debtors and he says, hey, here's your bill, right? You owe 100, you owe 80, take and write. Or you owe 100, take and write 80, take and write 50. You know, these massive sums of money that he basically just like gave away and that these people didn't have to repay his manager or his, his master. And then basically we saw what he was trying to do was to get friends for himself so that when he lost his job, right, that he would have people who would be able to take care of him. And the, the master actually praises him for his, his wisdom. Well, all that, we saw all that. And do you remember who was listening in the background? Who overheard all of that teaching that Jesus said to his disciples? The Pharisees, right? The Pharisees overheard all of that. And how did Luke describe the Pharisees, right, as he introduces them and says that they were listening? He said they were lovers of money. And then verses 16 to 18, Jesus, he's criticizing the Pharisees for their mishandling of God's word. We didn't really get into to that section last week, but that's what's going on. He's, he's, he's criticizing them because they have mishandled God's word. They've, they're lovers of money, and they're not handling God's word appropriately, which is in a similar vein, that's going to be the main focus of our passage this morning. So keep those things in mind as we dive into our text for this morning. The first thing that Jesus does here is he provides us with this very stark contrast between the earthly lives of this rich man and Lazarus. There are several things to notice here that are meant to arrest our attention. Let's look first at the rich man. How is he described here in verses 19 and 20? I think the first thing to notice that's interesting is he's not named. We're just told that there's this rich man. No name is given. He's clothed in purple, which is the color of royalty. It was very expensive to get purple dye in those days and to to make your clothes purple. That was a, a great amount of work that went into that. He's also wearing very expensive underwear when it talks about him having fine linen. Uh, He's got very expensive clothes and and underwear, which is interesting. And his food, he feasted sumptuously every day. This guy ate like a king. And then we're told that he had a gate in his home. So he was rich. He had power. He had protection. In summary, This man was a lover of money par excellence. In very sharp contrast, let's look at the poor man. We're introduced to the poor man who is named in verse 20. This man named Lazarus. The name Lazarus comes from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God is my help. Now, it's pretty clear from just looking at this, looking at the condition of this man, this is not the Lazarus from John's gospel. So if this is a real person that Jesus is talking about here, it's not the Lazarus from John's gospel. It's not the brother of Mary and Martha. Second thing to notice is his clothing. Uh, We're not actually told anything, right? We're told about how the rich man was dressed. We're not told about 
this man being covered with any specific type of clothing, but we're told that he was covered with sores. Um, and when we're told about the dogs coming and licking those sores, clearly that means he's, he's not so completely clothed that the dogs can't get at his sores. So he probably doesn't have a lot of clothes on, right? He's probably so poor, he's probably wearing very little. And that's kind of a, a picture of who he is as this outcast. In terms of food, he didn't have food to make, right? He had to beg for food, and he simply wished for the crumbs to eat that fell from the rich man's table. And in terms of a home, he had no home. He was lying outside of the gates day after day outside of this poor man's house. And then in verse 21, the ultimate insult is heaped on top of all of this when it says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Calvin's words in this regard are quite insightful. He writes, It was quite enough to prove the heartened cruelty of the rich man, that, that the sight of wretchedness like this did not move him to compassion. Had there been a drop of humanity in him, he ought at least to have ordered a supply from his kitchen for the unhappy man. But the crowning exhibition of his wicked and savage and worse than brutal disposition was that he did not learn pity even from the dogs. This is no veiled shot here by Jesus. He is essentially telling the Pharisees that they are less compassionate than dogs. Dogs in those days were not man's best friend. Right? They weren't the cuddly little furballs that run around our house and jump up on our laps. They were dirty and they were diseased. And this licking of the sores by these dogs would have caused greater pain and would have caused infection in this man. You did not want to be compared to dogs. Well, next, Jesus shifts from this snapshot of life on earth with these very marked contrasts to a snapshot of life after death. I already said that this passage is not the place that we go for a definitive explanation of the afterlife. The Bible has plenty to say about heaven and hell, but I don't believe that Jesus' main point here is to give us a crystal clear theology of the afterlife. Like I said, there's some, a lot of scholarly debate on these matters, but frankly, I think that can sidetrack us from the heart of this text. That said, we do need to look at a few of these things and ask a few key questions. So as we shift from the earthly scene of, of the contrast between this rich man and Lazarus to the heavenly scene, to the after-death scene, we need to make a few observations. First, we're told that the poor man dies, Lazarus dies, and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. It's a picture of his soul being in paradise. He is with the Lord. The rich man dies, and he is buried. And we're, we're told nothing about Lazarus's burial. Huge contrast here. The rich man would most likely have had a very elaborate burial, right? A lot of money would have went into this, this big scene. There's no mention of Lazarus's burial because he was probably just thrown in a pit and left and forgotten about. So the rich man dies, he's buried, his soul is in Hades, he's in torment, he's separated from God, he's separated from Lazarus, but interestingly, 
he can see Lazarus, he can see him far off at Abraham's side. So here are a few of the questions that this raises. First, why is the rich man in Hades? Is it because he was rich? Well, Jesus has a lot to say about how hard it is for those who are rich to get into heaven. But it's not because of the wealth in and of itself, but because wealth becomes God for those who are rich. And that is a huge point in this chapter. So that's the first reason. Second reason is that his treatment of Lazarus on earth certainly is related to him being in hell, which Abraham describes to him in verse 25. But I think the greatest reason, which I believe is, again, the focus of this text, which we'll see at the end of the passage, is his utter disregard for and his rejection of the word of God. So that's the rich man. Lazarus. Why is Lazarus at Abraham's side? It's not because he was poor. Being poor does not automatically punch your ticket to heaven, right? If it was that easy, I think, and people were afraid of going to hell, right? Like, I just want to go to heaven. Well, I'll just give away all my stuff and live this poor life so I can get to heaven. Well, that doesn't, that's not how it works. That doesn't get you into heaven. And we're not explicitly told here, but clearly at some level, Lazarus lived up to his name. His help was found in God alone. He trusted in God alone, despite being denied the basic earthly help from this rich man and others who would have passed him by day after day after day. Well, now is where things get pretty interesting as we see this dialogue between the rich man and Abraham. Notice in this passage, Lazarus never speaks. We don't have a single word from Lazarus. It's just the rich man and Abraham going back and forth. And there are two phases to the rich man's request. First, he cries out for mercy for himself. Then he cries out for mercy for his brothers who are still alive, his brothers back at home. Notice, first of all, that his cry for mercy to Father Abraham involves Lazarus. This poor beggar who he has ignored while he lay at his gate day after day. He asks him to be sent to cool his tongue from the anguish of the flames of hell. Notice that he doesn't ask for forgiveness of his sins or he doesn't even express remorse over his earthly life and the way that he treated Lazarus. He continues to expect Lazarus to be subservient to him, which is just crazy, right? Well, then comes the rebuke from Abraham in verse 25. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. Then the second half of that verse is the contrast between their eternal states. He says, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Okay, as I said, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to say this again, but as I've said, we should be careful not to read too much into some of the details of the afterlife here, okay? Again, this is a very fascinating text, but let's not get bogged down in like all those little details. But I do think verse 26 probably contains the most essential truth in this passage as it does relate to eternal destinies. 
And it is the key in Abraham's answer to both of the rich man's requests. So if you don't get anything out of like this whole dialogue about Hades and, and Abraham's side, verse 26 is really the key here. It says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. William Hendrickson says in his commentary, if all this is understood, it will have become clear that one great truth here emphasized is that once a person has died, his soul having been separated from his body, his condition, whether blessed or doomed, is fixed forever. There is no such thing as a second chance. Therefore, opportunities to help those in need and in general to live a fruitful life to the glory of God should be seized now. The Pharisees of Jesus' day needed to hear this, and so does our generation. We live in a day and age of, I'll get to it later, right? Both in our earthly responsibilities and in our spiritual lives. I remember very vividly a conversation that I had when I was in college. Um, and I may have shared this story once or twice, but I wasn't a Christian yet. It was my freshman year of college. My friend Derek and I came back to the, or sorry, my friend Jimmy and I came back to the dorms. Uh, my friend Derek was in the, was in, um, it was actually in Jimmy's room. So we came back to Jimmy's room and Derek and another friend, Jimmy's roommate, were sitting down and there were two girls from the Bible study who were in the room. They had their Bibles open and they're talking to these guys who aren't walking with the Lord about what it means to be a Christian. And the guys were kind of like, yeah, like this is good stuff. And Jimmy and I look at each other like, what are you guys talking about? Like, you guys are crazy. And so we just went to my room and literally I said to Jimmy, like, man, whatever, like, I'm not going to worry about that religion stuff. Like, I'll get serious about God when I'm older, when I'm married, when I have a family, right? Now I just want to live it up. I want to live my life and do my thing. Like, that was my attitude. Like, why would I care about my spiritual life now? Like, I've got my whole life to worry about that. But the warning here is, no, you don't, right? Like, you don't know when you're going to get taken out, right? Go back to the, the parable of the rich, the rich man who tore down his barns, right? Said, eat, drink, and be merry. And, said, and God says, your soul is required this very night. There, and there's no second chances, right? That is, the, that is the heart of this text. That is what I think we, in our culture, in our generation, need a serious wake-up call about. So what about you? Are you, as the saying goes, one who puts off until tomorrow what might be done today? Attributed to Benjamin Franklin. I'm sure many others have said that through the years. Have you cared for your loved ones and your own neighbors? Have you seized the opportunities that God has given you? What about your spiritual life? Are you right with God? Are you seizing every opportunity to be right with him? Being here for corporate worship is a good start. But it's easy to go through the motions when others are watching, isn't it? What about in your private life? When nobody else is watching? When the Lord alone sees your heart and sees your life? If you are not yet a Christian, now is the time. You might not get another chance. 
Turn to Jesus. Turn away from your sin and trust in him. And if you are a Christian today, if you've trusted in Christ alone, if you've repented of your sins, then you know what side of the chasm you will be on. But it's not just coast is clear, smooth sailing from here on out mentality. We are in a spiritual war. Every day is a battle. It's a battle to believe that the gospel is true because there are forces constantly trying to deceive us externally. And then we have our own hearts, right, that are trying to deceive us internally. There are lies everywhere, both from within and from without, and we are bombarded with the messaging of this world. Brothers and sisters, we must be hearing the voice of our shepherd if we are going to make it through this life without getting swallowed up by the deception of the world around us. Interestingly, if there is an ounce of pity in this rich man, it is for his brothers who are still alive and who are in the world system where there are distractions and temptations around every corner. And the rich man does not want his brothers to end up in hell where he is. Abraham has already explained that there is a chasm between the rich man and Lazarus so that Lazarus cannot cross it to comfort the rich man. But he is so desperate, even though he's already been told this, he asks again. He asks that Lazarus might cross that chasm and go back to earth and warn his brothers of their impending doom. If you've been zoning out, this is where you need to sit up and pay attention. This is the heart of this passage, in my opinion. Verses 29 to 31. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Listen to William Hendrickson again. These verses, he says, 29 to 31, do not always receive the attention they deserve. Why did Jesus insert them in this parable? The obvious reason is that if the doomed man himself had only read and taken to heart Moses and the prophets, and if his brothers would only do the same, they would not be lost. Why not? What is the point? Is it not this, that it is precisely in the books of Moses and in the writings of Isaiah, etc., that the life which is the exact opposite of that which the rich man had lives is commended? Trust in God, self-denial in the interests of others, kindness, help for the needy, for widows and orphans, the humble, etc., is constantly being urged. And then Hendrickson lists a dozen passages from Moses and a dozen passages from the prophets that address those topics. Then he says this, Besides, did not both Moses, Deuteronomy 18, where he talks about a prophet that will come after him to whom the people are to listen, did not both Moses 
and the prophets, and he lists Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53, famous prophecy about Jesus being the lamb who would be slain for us. Did not both Moses and the prophets point forward to him who would give himself as a ransom for many? Do you see the point here? The brothers already had all the warning that they will ever need to escape from the fires of hell. They have the written revelation from the living God right at their fingertips. They can read it for themselves. And the ESV softens this a little bit. It says, let them hear them. Speaking of the brothers, let them hear Moses and the prophets. But this is an imperative here from Abraham. I think it could be read a little more forcefully saying, they must listen to them. They must listen to Moses and the prophets. But the rich man objects. And he thinks that a resurrection from the dead, from Lazarus, will convince them and cause them to repent. I think there's some beautiful irony here, because remember that other Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11? Remember the effect that that had on the Jewish leaders? They wanted to kill him. And then they plotted even more to kill Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead. So if the rich man wants this Lazarus to come back from the dead to go to his brothers, why would they believe him when the, the actual Jewish leaders want to kill the real Lazarus, right? Like, come on. Abraham reassures them that even a resurrection from the dead will not do the trick. In fact, we know from Matthew chapter 28 and verses 11 to 15, the religious leaders, they knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead and they conspired to cover it up. So that the message wouldn't spread, right? They knew he was alive. They knew the disciples didn't come and steal his body. But they pay this great sum of money to say, we got to cover this up, right? If everybody goes off and starts believing in this guy who's been raised from the dead, we're in deep trouble. So there's tons of irony here. I think that is very instructive. All of the physical evidence in the world is not enough to change the hearts and minds of those who have not been willing to listen to what God has already revealed in his word. Let me say that again. All of the physical evidence in the world is not enough to change the hearts and minds of those who have not been willing to listen to what God has already revealed in his word. As Hendrickson said, Moses and the prophets have been pointing for hundreds, even thousands of years to the one who would come and give his life as a ransom for many. If you have been unwilling to listen to them this whole time, then evidence of the thing that they're pointing to is irrelevant. As I've said, I think this is really the main issue here. This is the thing that Jesus is driving home. In fact, it's so important that Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, they both end with an emphasis on this very point. I would invite you to turn there with me. Turn first to Luke chapter 24. Just forward a few chapters. Luke chapter 24. Very well-known passage here, the Maus Road account. I'm not going to read all of this, but uh, in verses 13 to 24, Jesus is, is um, or 
two of two of the disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. They're talking about all the things that have happened. Jesus appears to them. They don't know that it's him. And they're like, you haven't heard about what's been going on? And in verse 25, Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? And he's showing them. He's saying, you guys, how did you miss it? It was right in front of your faces this whole time, right? Generation after generation after generation, week in and week out, meeting in the synagogues, God's word being read and discussed and explained, and you missed it. Later on in chapter 24, Jesus appears to his disciples. They give him some fish to eat. Verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then they said, Oh, now we get it. We're so smart. No, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Without that, there is no understanding. If Jesus doesn't open our eyes to see and open our minds to understand, you could memorize the whole Old Testament and you'd be in darkness and you wouldn't see these things, right? It's not because we're so smart or we're so clever or we can piece all these, you know, all these like weird books about like Bible codes and nonsense. Like that's not how you figure this stuff out. Jesus has to open your eyes. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Turn now to the end of Acts. Acts chapter 28, 937, if you've got the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 28, end of Paul's life. He's in Rome. He's on, he's on house arrest. Um, near the end of his life, he is reasoning here with the Jewish leaders. I'm going to pick up at verse 23 of Acts 28. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. This, this is the Jewish leaders. They come to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. There was no New Testament yet, right? You read through the book of Acts and you read all the preaching that's going on. It's all from the Old Testament. Read Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. It's just unpacking Moses and the prophets and saying, these are the things that have been said for ages, for generation after generation about the Messiah. That's what Paul's doing here with the religious leaders. 
Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, this is from Isaiah 6, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear with their ears hear with their ear, see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Notice from the end of Luke and the end of Acts, what fuels the missionary enterprise of the church? It is the written and revealed word of God, illumined by the Holy Spirit, demonstrated and confirmed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what the church is sent out to proclaim. The church is sent to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the nations. Not signs and wonders, hoping that people might just maybe believe in Jesus if they witness some supernatural event. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, then nothing else will convince them. That principle is as true today as it was then, right? If we're like, oh man, if, you know, if LeBron James would just become a Christian, right? Like, then all these people would believe. Or if whatever, like, all these things that we think, if, if these things just happen, like, then all these people will be convinced. If they will not listen to the words of the only Son of God, then they will not be convinced when he raises Lazarus from the dead or when he himself rises from the dead. That's the warning to the Pharisees right here in Luke chapter 16. But it's not as if we can sit here today, two millennia later, and say, come on, you knuckleheads, how could you miss that, right? It was right in front of your eyes. It was so obvious. The same warning applies to us today, folks. So what does not listening to Moses and the prophets look like for Christians today in 2021. I think the best way to address that is to ask, what other sources or voices are we listening to? Maybe it's your favorite news channel. Maybe it's your friends on social media. Maybe it's your favorite YouTube personality. Maybe even it's a celebrity pastor. I'm not saying that we should never listen to any of these sources. Clearly, we need to get our information about what is going on in the world around us from somewhere. You can't go to the scriptures and find out how the fight against COVID is going right now, right? You can't go to the scriptures to stay up to date with different trends in American evangelicalism. To figure out information about those things, we got to go listen to other people and find out information. But if those voices 
are shaping our thinking more than the word of God, especially about the word of God, then we need this warning. This may be the tornado whistle or the lights on the dashboard moment for you. And not my warning, but the warning from Jesus to not fail to hear what God has to say. That was the source of the rich man's trouble from the get-go. Moses and the prophets told him how he should show mercy and compassion to the poor man at his gate. Moses and the prophets told him how he should have shared these truths with his brothers. Moses and the prophets told him about faith in the one true God and in his Messiah who would come to be the only savior of sinners. And he failed to heed all three of these warnings. Let us not squander the opportunity that we've been given to hear and to obey God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, this is a challenging passage in many ways. We are challenged with this picture of of this chasm. We're challenged by this warning to not hear and heed your words. And God, lest we think this is just some problem that the Pharisees had 2,000 years ago. God, help us to, to search our hearts. God, would you search our hearts? God, show us where we are not hearing you, where we are letting other voices creep in and inform us where we need to be informed by your word. God, this is a time for the church in America amidst all the the craziness, amidst all the polarization in our culture. God, this is a time for your people to stand firm upon your word, to live out the realities of the gospel, not informed by different political agendas, not informed by just craziness going on around us, but informed by your word. God, may we learn to love those around us. May we learn to serve those around us in a way that shows the love of Christ. God, we pray for our church. We pray for opportunities in this city to come alongside people who are struggling, to come alongside people who need to hear the warning, to need to, who need to know that there is a chasm between heaven and hell, and they will end up in one or the other, and that there is no time to waste, that they should not wait until tomorrow to decide what they're going to say about who Jesus is and what he has done. Father, give us boldness to have those conversations with people in our lives. 
Help us, Lord, when no one's watching, to check ourselves, to check our own hearts. God, to get right with you. To submit ourselves more fully to you. God, that your word would, would truly be the thing that, that drives us, that informs the decisions that we make, that informs the, the relationships that we form. And that we would be a people, God, shaped and, and changed by your word. There wouldn't just be some a Bible verse on the fridge or you know something on a coffee mug or whatever, some cliche thing. That your word would would penetrate deep into our souls, that it would change the way we live day in and day out. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.